Good morning, everyone. It's as if we never left Star Theatre last night. And so we had continuous worship from last night to this morning. So we want to thank God for bringing the Gettys here, the band, for their love for Jesus and the love for Jesus expressed in commitment to His church and passion. So let's give them a round of encouragement. It's very important. Except I do not know whether you noticed that this morning Keith wasn't his bright self as he was last night because his football club lost. <laughs> we are sorry, but I think that reading from Psalm 27 was good. Wait, wait for the Lord, be strong. One day Liverpool might win. <laughs> How many of you have been to Disneyland? How many of you would love to go to Disneyland? Disneyland was made in 1955. In the 1950s, it was the idea of Walt Disney who wanted to create a, a world for his children, for his daughters, a, a make-believe world, but at least a make-believe world where you walk into that world, it's free from worries, you enter that world, you're carefree, your weight is lifted, your hearts are lightened, the faces brighten up, and life is worth living after a brief visit to Disneyland. And in the early days, when we started to watch this on television, black and white television that I grew up with in, in Malaysia, my family was too poor to have a television set. So you know how we watched it, both in Malaysia and in Singapore in the early days? It was um, the richest family in the neighborhood, the richest family in town and village, We'll, we'll be able to afford the television, and all 20, 30 of us as children will sit around, <laughs> right? Gate crashing every time. And the two signature songs were When You Wish Upon a Star. Do you know that one? Right? And then the second one, which became my favorite as a young boy, is A Small World After All. It's a small world after all. You know that one? And so when we finally went to Disneyland, not for my sake, for the sake of my young children. When we were en route to our sabbatical in, in Boston, we stopped over at LA, did some ministry there, and finally went to Disneyland. And I was, I was overwhelmed by this unreal and beautiful world. And so my favorite spot to go to, because I suffered from vertigo, I couldn't cope with a lot of the rides, was that very serene boat ride, round and round, it's a small world after all. I remember going there over the, I think we were there for two, three days or so. Um, we pro probably went there, in my memory, about five to ten times. But my family was so traumatized by that, they remember it as 50 to 100 times. Even my young children, Dad, that's enough. It's a small world, it's getting smaller. <laughs> What's Disneyland all about? What are theme parks all about? It's about feeling good in a world that is not good. And when you enter that world, a make-believe world for a little while, for a holiday, the world is at peace. You are at peace. Something that you never want to end. The smiles on the faces of your children, some experiences we want to keep repeating forever and ever. Amen? The joy that parents have when they know they've given a good thing to their children, something within our God-given nature draws us in like a magnet. We gravitate towards what? We gravitate in our God-given nature 
towards love. And love is expressed in peace. And peace is expressed in joy. And all these things are of God. And God created us in His image to bear those things, to share those things, to experience those things. So these are the things we love to repeat. And we seldom want to stop. But if we do stop, like a visit to Disneyland, it's because it's too expensive, and after a while, it's too unreal. So there's another horrific sh school shooting in America, in Uvalde, Texas. And Salvador Ramos walked in, and he murdered 19 young children and two teachers in one of the worst mass shootings to strike violence-weary America. And here I read from the CNN article, Ramos had made eye contact with one teacher as he pushed his way into a classroom. He then said, good night, and shot the teacher dead in the face. 11-year-old Mia Cirillo used a teacher's cell phone to call for help as the 18-year-old shoot shooter Ramos gunned down students and teachers at her school. An 11-year-old Mia and a friend scrambled for their date teacher's cell phone and made an urgent plea to 9-11 operators. Please come. Please come. We are in trouble. And Maya so understandably has been so scarred and traumatized from this. She dipped her hands in the blood of a dead friend, smeared it on herself, lying there for what felt like hours until help finally came. By God's grace, Maya survived. And as I said, she's understandably so traumatized by this. Her hair has begun to fall out in clumps since the massacre. Some things in life we never want to remember, let alone repeat. We wish and work so hard to wipe these bad experiences, sad experiences, traumatic experiences from our memory. We try to scrub it off us when unspeakable joy turns to unforgettable sorrow. Something within us repels and turns us off from words and actions of hate. Words of actions of hate, of unpeace. Things we desperately want to erase, but we seldom can because they are too deeply ingrained in our sinful nature and too real in our fallen world to wish away. When we arrive at Nehemiah chapter 9, we come to one of those moments, one of those moments when God speaks to them and they individually and collectively would like to forget. What is it they would like to forget? They would like to forget how they sinned against God in the past, how their forefathers sinned against God in the past. Though God chose them as the apple of His eye, that was bad enough. But as they stand here in chapter 9 to 10, 11, 12, and next week, chapter 13, the possibility and reality and the certainty of their rebellion, of their stiff-neckedness, of their sin against the God who chose them and loved them will be repeated. 
You want me to say that again? That the possibility, the reality, and the certainty of their sin against God expressed in sin against neighbor will surely be repeated in the life of Israel even after the exile. I do not know about you, but that's totally terrifying because the things you do not want repeated are the things that will keep repeating in your life and my life. So for a bit of background and context, in chapter 8, when they first read from the book of the law that went missing from their lives, and I think intentionally so in God's purposes, you know what led them into the, into the exile? Is that they read the Word of God. They read the Word of God routinely. They read the Word of God ritually. And then they read the Word of God, I think Mona, my wife said, they read the Word of God superficially. And they heard the, God of, the Word of God nominally. And because they read God's Word and heard God's Word and obeyed God's Word only whenever they turned out in the temple. So God worked for them, the Jews, their, their Sabbath day was Friday evening to Saturday evening. God was with them for that 24 hours. But from Sunday to the next Friday, God went missing from their lives. So they lived with their Bibles shut. And when you live with your Bible shut and feel no repercussions of it for your single heart, for your married life, for your parenting, for your work or your business, that's very dangerous, my friends. It was for that reason that God sent them into exile twice. And now they had returned. And this is in the context of that. Do you remember in chapter 8, when they first read from the book of the law that had been forgotten, they now treasured the book of the law. And when they heard the book of the law, they, they started mourning and fasting and crying. And God said to them, to Nehemiah, don't moan, don't fast, don't cry. For now, as you listen to the word of God, and now as you come back from the exile, no more superficial listening, no more nominal listening. It is listening with your heart, listening humbly and listening truly. I'm just going to stop speaking for a while. What do you hear? For about an hour, you heard a, a lot of songs of praises. Did you sing along? Did you hear the lyrics of the words? You heard me speak for about 10 minutes. Were you beginning to tune out? I could see that. But when I stop speaking and ask you whether, are you listening humbly? Are you listening truly? Or are you going to repeat what we experienced pre-COVID around the world and post-COVID after coming back from the pandemic? That your hearing of God is going to be superficial. When I stop speaking, if I stop long enough, you will not just hear the children amongst us. You might hear the air conditioning. When you embark on attentive listening, you hear everything. I've shared this illustration again and again because it happened right here in this church, in, this, in, in one of our services. I finished this, the sermon, I went back, I spoke to different people, prayed for different people, and this lady came up to me and said, Pastor Chris, the sermon today was just wonderful. In fact, the sermons of the last three weeks have been wonderful. I want to say to you, the sermons of the last few years was terrible. Something along those lines. I didn't really listen. And then I was wondering to myself, was it that bad? 
Is it that good? And then she told me a story that she had gone through a rough time and God had pulled the rug from under her. When God pulls the rug from under you, you listen a lot better. It's not that we improve in our preaching. That may be there. God pulled the rug from under His people. And the rug was the rug of idolatry. Did you think Israel could do time with calling Yahweh superficially on Friday and Saturday? and then chasing after the bales from Sunday to Friday? You think you can do time with God and He will never notice? And if He did notice, what on earth is He going to do about it? But now that they come back, the remnant had to learn that in hearing God's Word, there is joy, remember? He tells them to go out and buy sweet things and eat sweet things and share the sweet things. So Israel, in coming back from the exile, had to learn two things about God. One, whenever you sing God, you must sing joy because this God has given you another chance. And the return from the exile is a second exodus, the God who gives us second chances. This is not a second-hand God, but the God who gives you second chances. And so whenever they think God as the remnant, they must think joy. That was chapter 8. But now by chapter 9, whenever you think God, you got the thing sorrow, lament, confession, repentance. And that's right here in the first few verses. And so the first few verses say this. And what does it say? Verse 1, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And so they were assembled for this. So this God, as we approach the holy God, Israel had to know that there's joy and the true joy comes from what? The true joy comes from repentance from sin. That is your truest joy to set a deadline for sin and set a start date for holiness. And Israel had to learn that from God. And so this is vitally important. Verse 2 says this, The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, what on earth does this mean? This is not a statement of racial discrimination. This is not a statement for Jewish pride and Jewish superiority. It was a statement of dedication, a statement of devotion to God, Yahweh, their God. Because in Leviticus 20 verse 26, it says this, I have separated you from the peoples. And why has God separated Israel from the peoples? that you should be mine. This is a statement of exclusive love, of covenant love, that God has covenanted his, with His people. He will love them to the exclusion of all others. And we, in response to this covenant God, Israel, in response to this covenant God, must love God to the exclusion of all others. And that's what I've been saying. We have done about three, 400 weddings here. Right? And whenever the couple stand up here and make a vow, right, the wedding day, said somebody, is the day in which you love each other the least. Did I say it rightly? I had very little sleep last night because Liverpool lost. No, friends. The wedding day is the day in which a couple make their vows and they love each other the least because if they are in Christ, from that moment onwards, 
they will learn to love each other more and more and more. To the exclusion of all others, despite their differences, despite the difficulties in life. And so, I've known this woman, my wife Mona, since six years old. And that's a very long time ago. I've been married to her for 30... I better get this right. Oh dear. 35 years. And that's a very long time. To know her from six years old and to be married for her to, for 35 years, it's really boring in this, in this world. But you know how hard it is to do this? To tell the couples that you're to love each other to exclusion of all others. This is covenantal love. That no matter how attractive other women out there, I pray each day that my eyes and my heart will be longing after Mona. Amen? Are you, are you here with me? And you just have to put your wife's name in there. No matter how attractive the other women are in your workplaces or your play places, your eyes and your heart, your longing, and if you wanted to lust for anybody, you have a right to long and love and lust after your God-given wife and husband. That is loving each other to the exclusion of all others. Israel was to do that for Yahweh. And if she did that in response to Yahweh, she would learn to do that humanly and horizontally in her life. And so, friends, I was speaking in a church camp, and it's now fashionable, but we haven't had church camps around the world, right, for about two years. And prayerfully by next year, it will resume. And prayerfully, more of us will go up to Malaysia for this church camp. And maybe the Gettys will be there. <laughs> what do you think? Is that a good idea? <laughs> Keith, just a small hint. Wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. It might happen. <laughs> and one of the church camps pre-COVID, you know, the number one topic being dealt with now is sexual plasticity and sexual fluidity in a world in which there's no black and white in terms of sexuality and humanity and personality. And so after the presentation of the talk and uh, there was Q&A and parents were there and youth were there and parents were there and youth were there and the parents were all lamenting of how dangerous this world and how the children and the youth all had to think rightly about this and one youth got up and said, I know all this. This is a good Bible teaching church. This is not our church, but another church that I went to. But maybe the, the, the married couples here cannot just tell us about the rightness of marriage, but show us the goodness of Christian marriage. Because I don't see that in my parents. I don't see that in many marriages in church. I see the same amount of petty quarrels. I see the same amount of irritation. I see the same amount of cold walls and slammed doors. There was silence in that whole workshop. We as the people of God must not just hold out the rightness of the things of God, but breathe out and live out the goodness of being married to one woman, one man, for the rest of your life. Amen? Mm -hmm. A bit slow, but never mind. We'll get there. We'll get there. And so, this is the promise they make. And, it's, and so they confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers, and true joy will come from repenting from sin and returning to God. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law, the God, the book of the law about their God, 
for a quarter of the day, for another quarter of the day, they make confession and worship the Lord. You know what the commentator said? This is a six-hour service. A six-hour service. Can you imagine that? Three hours of reading the Bible and three hours of responding to the Bible. And the right response to word is always worship. The right response to word of God is always the worship of God. And we see that here in Nehemiah. Six hours of this. There are two sets of Levites, two sets of lists, five common names in the two lists, three different names in the two lists. One set of Levites lead in crying out to the Lord. That means perhaps they lead in confession and repentance, lamenting for their sin. The other set of Levites, the five common names and the three new names, they lead in blessing the Lord. Stand and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. A few side points I make here. I do not know whether they are side points or main points. The Church of Jesus Christ across the world, from the Western world to here in Asia, we, you know, we've got to realize this as we read Nehemiah or any book of the Bible. We cannot read God's Word and nothing happens. You cannot read God's Word and something happens. You read God's Word and hear God, God's Word and everything happens. And the heart of everything happens, you go from idolatry of self to the worship of God. From a life centered around you and your joy and your happiness to a life centered around God. And what has four days of the Gettys taught us? Precisely that. So there was logic to this. Then on the first day, Thursday night, they came and they told us why we of all people compared to every organization and every grouping of people out there, we as believers have a reason to sing. And if you were there, can you remember the three reasons that Keith gave us? That the first reason is because God commanded us to sing. I've forgotten, but there's somebody to help me here. God commanded us to sing, created us to sing, commanded us to sing, and the third, see, is in Christ, we have every reason to sing. Then on the second night, where should we sing? How should we sing? We should sing the gospel to pass the gospel forward to neighbours and nations. We should sing the gospel and pass it downwards to generations upon generations of others. And Christine taught us that you can sing. Singing is for everybody. Secondly, singing is for every day. And thirdly, singing is... I paid this group to say something. <laughs> the rest of you, where were you? That singing is for everyone, that singing is for every day, and singing is forever. And all that reach a crescendo, if you are doing that from Monday to Saturday in your lives, individually in your personal reading of God's Word, in your personal obedience to God's Word, in your personal confession and repentance, if you are doing that in your marriages, in your families, then when we come together, we experience that collectively, the beauty and the majesty of worshipping God and saying this is not just right, but this is good and glorious, good for us and glorious unto God. And wasn't it glorious last night? And then today, they come and show us this is how it can be from week to week. Keith and Christine, you have just upped the standard and we do not know what to do after this. We never have preludes in church. And all the musicians 
can you stay back a bit longer? Give some training to our musicians. It doesn't have to be of that quality, but most importantly, is the whole sense of reverence. A smaller point for us to make. This was in Nehemiah 9, a six-hour worship session, right? From the west to the east, the Church of Jesus Christ has been bamboozled by this half-truth, if not outright lie. And the half-truth or outright lie is that with Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, or Gen Z, right, they are not able to focus. You've got to keep giving them bite-sized Bible and bite-sized sermons and bite-sized devotions and bite-sized podcasts. And that started with Bill Hybels and the Seeker Service Movement in America, and he came here and we sat down and says, all services shouldn't be more than an hour. They did a survey, and I read George Barner on this. says, after 20, 30 years of this short service and short sermons, right, everything in bite-sized, you do bite-sized Bible reading, bite-sized sermons, you get small-sized Christians. They were shallow in their discipleship. So it's not so much the length of the service or the length of the sermon, but look hard. The listening to God's Word that they've forgotten, that sent them into exile, propelled them into exile, but God in His grace brought them back. And now the hunger and thirst for God's Word, the reading of it for three hours and the responding to it in worship for three hours. Do you think that generation after generation of young folks have lower and lower concentration? No, friends. They can game from morning to night. Game from morning to night. If you ever tell them to stop, you might have World War III, not started by Putin, but started by you. Stopping your teenager. Who says you can't focus? Who says your, me your memory attention is bite-sized? God created you with a huge CPU for His Word to do His will. But we are compromising this. And some of us can binge on Korean dramas four hours, eight hours. But the reading of God's Word, quickly, 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 briefly, bite-sized Bible devotions leads to small-hearted and small-sized and shallow Christians. We've got to understand that, my friends. And then it goes on, and I must summarize here, for the rest of things, as you read here, it's a list of thee and thou, God and Israel. In the olden English, this is what you have done, and this is what we have done. And what is it that God has done? You saw the affliction of our fathers, so you meet a God who sees our affliction. And then you heard our cry. And then, what did you do? You came, you divided the sea before them, and you rescued them from the army. And you provided for them, and you spoke to them, and you gave them bread from heaven. But, here is the but, this is God and all His character and all His actions towards them, actions of covenantal love. But this is what Israel did in response to this God who loved them with an undeserved love. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously, stiffened their neck, did not obey their commandments. They refused to obey you, not mindful of the wonders you perform among them. They stiffened their neck, appointed the leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. And so a God who is so abundant in His love, so generous in His, in his love for them, and they are so stingy in their response to Him.
So what keeps this relationship going? What has kept this relationship going? Here is the punchline. But you are God, ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. So you meet here in the second part to the closing verses of Nehemiah 9. God, the ultimate promise keeper. Israel, the ultimate promise breakers. And if God wasn't a promise keeper, there will be no salvation. This is the God, the true and the living God. And the main message of Nehemiah is this, three R's. Return from exile, rebuild the wall, and revive in true worship of God. You know what? They return, they rebuild, they revive, and from chapter 10 onwards, they make pledges to God that we will never do this again. We will never listen to you superficially. We will never rebel against you. We will never disobey you. We will never sin. And by chapter 13, all those promises came to naught. They said they'll never intermarry. They did. They said they'll keep the Sabbath day and not trade on the Sabbath day. They did. They said they'll give a portion to the priests. They didn't. They said they will never embark on being rich Jews at the expense of the poor Jews. They did that all again. Which tells you, Ezra and Nehemiah, the two books put together, that returning from exile, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and the remnant by itself, reviving in temporary pledges, was not the answer. They will become one from the remnant, the true Israelite, and his name is Jesus. It is he who will respond to God. It is he who is the ultimate promise keeper. And that is when the cycle of sin will stop. The cycle of sin, punishment, repentance will stop. Now Jesus comes to wash us clean of sin once and for all. And that's the simple message of the gospel. Some things in life we want always to repeat, the good things in life. Our God-given nature has a magnet to repeating the good things of love, of joy and peace. Some things in life we never want to repeat, we never want to remember, the things of unlove, the things of unpeace, the things of broken relationship with God and broken relationship with others. And how are you going to stop this, friends? So, they embark on the purest of motives with the sincerest of pledges. Never again will we, as the return remnant, do this. And in your life and my life, have you never done this? I was once preaching at a conference in Australia. And after the conference, this big-sized person turned out to be a sportsman, quite well-known, very well-known in his field. He said, could I have a chat with you? I said, yep, okay. What you, what you said from, from the Bible is so true. I really want to be faithful to my wife, but I just can't. She's a lovely woman, but whenever I travel overseas for my sport, anything that moves in a skirt, I chase. But you know, I'm so good. I'm so good in justifying myself. She believes me that I'm totally faithful to her. And then he buries his face in his hands. 
I don't want to go on living like this, pretending that I'm faithful when I'm not. I cannot stop. I cannot stop. Sin is something you cannot stop. Never again will I have an, another petty quarrel with Mona. Never again will I be negligent and traumatizing of my children in a moment of meltdown. Never again will I roll my eyeballs at my, at my parents. Never again will I be short and disrespectful to my parents who brought me up with so much sacrifice. Never will, again will I be quick to speak, slow to listen. Never again will I be so judgmental and bitter and unforgiving. Never again, we say never again, only to do it again and again. It's not just Israel's problem, it's our problem. And you know, when you fast forward to the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, who knew the law, right? He struggled with this in Romans chapter 8. And he struggles with this in Romans chapter 7 before we head to Romans chapter 8. He says, wretched man that I am, the very things I know I should do, I cannot do, I do not do. The very things I know I shouldn't do, I do it all the time. Wretched man that I am. And what's his rescue? His rescue is a wonderful description of the gospel. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for we who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Whatever you do not know, friends, sin and death has become a power, a law in your life. You may try as much as possible to justify yourself, rescue yourself by law righteousness, by morality, by religiousness, by your own self-sufficiency, by your self-redemption, but you can never rescue yourself. If you could rescue yourself from a moment of anger, a moment of lust, a moment of self-pleasing at the expense of neighbour, Jesus didn't need to die on the cross for us. Amen? Thanks be to God. There is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. For in Christ, the Spirit of God has set us free from the law of sin and death. Lord, I offer my life to you. What life is there? We should all sing, Lord, I offer my death to you. For in Hebrews chapter 2 says, all of us are slaves to the fear of death. And so when we go, we have to steady ourselves. Mona, myself, the pastors, you as friends, do I really believe that Jesus has come as the true remnant, as the true Israelite, to put an end to this vicious cycle of sin and death? Yes, He has. And if we believe in Him, His Spirit comes into you to bring about that once and for all change. And that change continues to happen, work in progress. And that's what the Gettys have come to do. That's all about the Lord Jesus. It's all about a new beginning in Him. And let's take this personal devotion and let's take this family devotion seriously. Let's take the listening to God and His Word and His Son seriously. No more superficiality. No more nom just nominal listening. This is the worship we owe to Jesus. And this is our witness and this is our worship. We're going to end our time on this very high note with two beautiful songs, one of the Spirit and the other of Christ 
being our hope in life and in death. So as the musicians come up to get ready, may we sing this with all our hearts. And after we sing this, we'll close in prayer.